This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kelly Fryer, Democratic candidate for governor of Arizona. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and why you decided to jump into this race? I have spent my career really in service to my community. My my very first uh, job um, after I graduated from college was at a bank. After two weeks of training, the bank president came to talk to everybody uh, who had gone through the training, and he made it. He gave us a piece of paper to sign, and uh, and the paper was an agreement that we would uh, that we were agreeing to not talk about the nuclear power plant that was being built nearby. And uh, I looked at the paper and I said, "Wait a minute, you mean we can't talk about this while we're at work, right?" And he said, "No, you can't talk about it anywhere ever." The utility company is that's building the plant is our biggest customer, and I was like, "Well, wait a minute. What about the First Amendment?" And um, and he fired me for insubordination on the spot. I left the bank and I went to get a job at the organization that was working to shut down the plant as a field organizer, and that sort of has that kicked off my career, and that sort of, you know, characterized it ever since. Just really, you know, being uh, kind of a, at the ground level, you know, at the grassroots of trying to make the world a better place. I started out as a, you know, as a pastor. I was a seminary professor. Got I was really well known in my denomination for being able to turn around congregations that were in trouble. I got kind of famous for that. Wrote a bunch of books. Um, did a lot of consulting and keynote speaking. Started my own consulting business, in fact, and did that for a long time. Helping nonprofits and faith-based organizations. Uh, turn around and uh, get in a position where they could serve their commu- community better and grow. Uh, started working actually in nonprofit organizations as an executive director and a CEO. Right now, I'm the CEO of the YWCA in Southern Arizona, uh, which is part of the oldest civil rights and social justice organization in the country. Um, our mission is ending racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. And um, after the first Women's March, uh, I spoke at the one here in Tucson. Folks in my community started talking to me about about running for office. Uh, I jumped into this race uh, because I thought the kinds of issues that I really care about that impact the people in my community and the people that I love were not being talked about. And um, I wanted to be sure that, you know, that all the issues were out there, you know, kind of on the radar screen, that every voice was being heard. Uh, I also think I, I also think I would be a killer governor. I think I'd be, I think I'd be a, be a really good governor of Arizona and help fix a lot of these, these terrible problems that we face here in the state and really help change the culture to make it, you know, a place that's really welcoming for everybody. So what are some of those problems and how do you want to fix them? Well, I think a lot of folks, um, in the country know Arizona for some beautiful things. You know, the Grand Canyon, the, the giant Swaharos in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, I think this is the most beautiful state in the country. But we're also known for, you know, being a state that is constantly on the attack when it comes to women's rights. 
you know, for starters, for example, and, and particularly the right of women to control their own bodies and have access to full reproductive health care and, um, and abortion services. I think we're known for our anti-immigrant uh, policies. There was a, you know, Sheriff Joe Arpaio is a, is a name and a, he's known kind of like a caricature across the country as a, a law enforcement person here in Arizona who, you know, started detention centers and uh, humiliated the people who were held in his jails. Um, I mean, he, he himself, you know, referred to them as, um, as, you know, as camps, just terrible. So I think Arizona, a lot of folks know us for some of the worst policies against people who are, you know, on the margins, minorities, women, LGBTQ folks. And then on top of that, we have some of the worst poverty rates of any state in the country. We are facing literally an environmental disaster here. Uh, We're in the middle of a terrible drought. You know, there are communities around our state that are literally running out of water right now. And we've got people in government who don't seem at all interested in solving any of these problems. I'm not even sure, you know, they're paying attention to us. They're way more interested in, you know, their own uh, profit, their own, you know, building their own wealth, their own influence, their own power, and just not working for the people of Arizona. So, you know, what could I do about that? First of all, not be a crook. <laughs> you know, I'll, uh, I'll be a governor that works for the people of Arizona and, um, and not for, you know, not for my big donors, not for the Koch brothers, not for Alec, not for the NRA but really somebody who's working for the people of Arizona and really focused on trying to make the state work for all of us. With immigration, you are one of the only gubernatorial candidates in the nation who has supported the movement to abolish ICE. Could you tell us about that? In my role here as the CEO of the YWCA um, in Southern Arizona, we serve thousands of immigrant women and their families every year. We have workforce programs, we have a business center, you know, to help people turn their what's usually kind of a side hustle into a a job that can really support their family. We help immigrants uh, get acclimated. We help a lot of uh, women who have come here because of domestic violence back home and who are, uh, and many of them who are here in domestic violence situations, uh, we help them get out of those situations and get, you know, kind of get their life back uh, going in the direction that they want it to go. So uh, I work with with immigrants. I, I work with lots of folks um, who came here, you know, and were undocumented uh, for the for the first, you know, half of their life or for the for the last ten years. And the stories that are being told about who is crossing our border and who is coming to us for help are so off base, you know, and, and what I'm seeing isn't that we're in danger from, you know, the millions of rapists and murderers that are coming across our border. That's just false. It's just a false narrative. The real danger that people in my community face is from ICE. It's actually from the law enforcement uh, officials who work for our federal government. Um, there's just a story out today on, uh, I was just listening to it before I jumped on with you, about the thousands of reports of sexual abuse and rape that are happening in ICE detention centers. We have, we have created a monster, 
you know, I, a lot of folks, a lot of folks, I think across the country, especially in these border communities are, are scared, you know, but they're scared not because of what's really happening on the street. Some of them are scared because of the narrative that's being told by people like my current governor and by our current president. You know, they're scared because of the, the kind of the hyperbole around uh, what's happening on the border. And then there's a whole bunch of folks in my community who are literally scared of the United States government. I think we need to take about 12 steps back and say, all right, what is actually happening here? What are all of the complicated issues related to immigration? Why are there so many people on our border, you know, knocking on our door, begging us for help and refuge? What's going on there? And what is the best way for us to respond? ICE as an agency, uh, work, they work inside our communities, you know, conducting raids, rounding up perfectly innocent immigrants just because they're undocumented. These are not people who are breaking the law. Um, you know, they're people who are just here trying to, tr- literally trying to survive and rounding them up and, and filling up for-profit detention centers with these people, these families, kids, and, uh, and making money off of it. And the, I mean, the whole situation is so out of control. ICE as an agency was started 15 years ago in the aftermath of 9-11 when Americans were really scared and angry. And that has just fossilized now into, you know, kind of an anti-immigrant, anti-minority, uh, fear-mongering, hate-based uh, approach. Those are the values that kind of, uh, you know, are at the foundation of what's happening with ICE right now. I think we need to dismantle that agency. Uh, We need to return to a time when our immigration and naturalization uh, agency was just dealing with people in 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 a more humane way. So uh, I think we need to really rethink what we're doing and who we are and how we're going to treat each other. And we need to rebuild our immigration policies from a more rational, compassionate, and ultimately economically more sound approach. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Now, you have worked closely with immigrant communities, with undocumented people. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you saw with the dehumanizing effect, the silencing effect that detention and deportation have. 
Well, you know, I think the first thing I, I, I want to say is that um, you've heard that saying about, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right now, the only tool that we have in our toolbox as a nation uh, to deal with immigration is the military. That's the only tool that we're using right now. And so everyone looks like an enemy. That is just not, that's just not, not true. When we're talking about you know, the kind of people that are coming across the border every year. And, and, and in Arizona, millions of people are going back and forth across the border every year through checkpoints, legally, if you will. You know, the folks that are coming back and forth across the border, these are neighbors, their family, their friends, their employees, their co-workers, they're our customers. Um, Mexico is our largest trading partner here in Arizona, critically important for our economy. And, and I think it's important to note that, especially here in a place like Arizona, we're talking, you know, the, the conversations about people who are crossing the border. The reality is the border crossed these people. The border here is not that old. There were still skirmishes happening between the Mexican government, the United States government, uh, well into the 20th century. You know, the, the border itself is a new phenomenon. There are families that have lived here for centuries, and the border literally cut families in half, cut towns in half. You know, there's a, there's a Nogales, Arizona, and there's a Nogales, Sonora. Used to be the same town. The border went right through the middle of it. You know, one of the things that this whole conversation it really leaves out is the fact that this border is, it's, it's kind of a, it's, you know, it's an imaginary thing in a lot of ways. It's a man-made creation. And the impact of militarizing that border and criminalizing people who are crossing the border for economics, uh, for, you know, economic opportunity, for education, for love, you know, for love of family, for, uh, for love of friends, for love of neighbors. We, we just need to, like I said, we need to take 12 steps back and really look at what's happening here. And, um, and what's happened to the community that I serve and the, and the communities that I care about and the people that I love here in Southern Arizona, particularly those who are immigrants and have immigrant families. So it's not just the undocumented people here that live in fear, but it's anybody that is, has undocumented family or friends or neighbors or, or employees. Uh, what's happening is that, that, uh, that the actions of ICE, by bringing that military sensibility into our communities, where people are constantly afraid of being pulled over by the police, who will then call ICE or call Border Patrol, um, who are constantly afraid of being raided um, at work, are being afraid of having their kids be questioned, pulled out of class in school, and questioned about their own uh, immigration status and the and the status of their extended family, who are afraid of being raided at work by ICE. There's just this fear for many, especially undocumented women. There is a fear of leaving their own homes. I know uh, women we've who we've worked with at, you know, at the YWCA who spent a decade or more literally not leaving their homes uh, because of their immigration status. That kind of fear is corrosive to a community. Um, there are women who are stuck in domestic violence situations because their husband has immigration uh, papers and is here, you know, with documentation, and and they're not. The women are not, and they're they're just stuck in these situations. They can't report. They can't leave. 
They can't go ask for help. Uh, and the abuse that's happening is rampant. People are, who are victims of crime, you know, people, who, undocumented women uh, employed by people without scruples to clean homes or, you know, do yard work or or whatever, whatever it is that they have to do to make a living, who are have wages stolen from them, who are sexually abused by their employers. And again, there's nowhere to go. There's no place to ask for help. Um, it, this situation has really, with ICE and, and with this militarized approach to immigration, has created uh, just so much dysfunction and fear. And it hurts all of us. You know, it doesn't just hurt those undocumented families. It, it really hurts all of us. It's corrosive to community. And I think it needs to really, I think we really need to just get a hold of ourselves and, uh, and realize that we're being played. You know, we're being played. The things that we're being told by our elected officials uh, that we need to be afraid of, they are just not true. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't bad guys that come back and forth across, across the border. Of course there are. There are bad guys every place. We have law enforcement. We have sh the, sh you know, the sheriff's department. We have local law enforcement to take care of bad guys. But we have, we have criminalized people. You know, we really need to just stop and look at who's benefiting from this situation and who's benefiting, again, are the people who own those private prison, uh, prisons and private detention centers, uh, the people who own companies that sell guns and drones and, you know, all that military equipment. This has become a, a way for people to make money. It's not keeping us safer. It's actually making us less safe. So this is very much a racial and criminal justice issue as well. The fact that I even say racial and criminal justice together is very indicative of how people of color have been criminalized in the United States. How do you hope to dismantle the racist criminal justice system and promote racial justice in your state? The first thing that we need to do, and the first thing I'll do uh, when elected governor, is to end all of the contracts that we have as a state with private prisons and private detention centers. I think it is absolutely outrageous and immoral that people are profiting out of putting other people in jail. Here in Arizona, we spend uh, more than a billion dollars a year on our criminal justice system, on prisons and, and, and jails, and we incarcerate more people per capita in our state than almost any other state in the nation. I think we're number four. And part of that is because we have all these contracts with private companies and they are guaranteed 90% occupancy rate, 90 to 100% occupancy rate. That means they get paid for every single bed, you know, that, that, they, that they have. And so the motivation for, uh, for law enforcement to fill those beds is enormous. And we do it. And we do it in a variety of ways. We do it by, um, you know, by rounding up uh, undocumented people who are just trying to go to work or go to school and take care of their kids, rounding them up, putting them in detention centers. So the number one thing we need to do is we need to end this practice. We need to end the business of putting people in jail. Once I can, you know, once I can bring those private prisons and detention centers and so on under the under the uh, care of the state, now I get to. Uh, be involved in making sure that the people who are being detained are being treated with respect and dignity and that we are, you know, that we're respecting the human rights of the people in our care. But I think there are some other things we need to do too. I mean, because we've had this for-profit system, there's been a lot of motivation to 
to make uh, you know stricter mandatory sentencing uh, laws, to create a whole new class of crimes that are now felonies, so that people have mandatory prison time and and they're in there for longer. You know, my goal would be to institute alternative sentencing programs, early release programs, and re- and reduce the number of people that we have in detention in prison at any time by at, by 50%. Um, and we start by making sure that people who have not create who have not committed a violent crime don't spend time behind bars. There are other ways that people can can uh, fulfill their service and or their sentence and things that are going to lead to rehabilitation and and reentry. Um, so there, I think there's a lot that we can do to really address uh, what's happening in terms of uh, our criminal justice system to move pa- you know to move uh, past this you know mass incarceration and really look uh, finally to really look at the structural racism and unconscious bias that exists in the system. As governor, I'll make sure that every single person who's engaged in the criminal justice system in Arizona takes some training, has some training in unconscious bias and structural racism and understands the dynamics here and what's really going on. There's a lot we can do. And would you support reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans? That's a, I think that's a really good question. One of the things that I'm calling here, calling for here in Arizona is a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, not just here in Arizona, but across the nation. But I'm just going to talk about my state. We have this long and, and terrible history of the way in which people of color have been uh, treated you know, by the system, starting with Native Americans. We have 22 tribal nations within our borders as a state. And the way in which uh, the folks who live on those uh, tribal lands have been treated is uh, is a travesty. Right now today, up on the Navajo Reservation, 30% of folks who live up there don't have electricity, don't have running water. Um, across the reservation, the roads, most of the roads are impassable. People don't have access to broadband. Cell phone coverage is almost non-existent. There is a, a terrible lack of services to deal with all of the the issues that folks there are, are wrestling with addiction, domestic violence, and so on. So we have this we have this long history of not honoring our treaties uh, with our tribal neighbors, and then move to the border and move to the way in which, as I said, you know, we drew this artificial line, the border, in between families and communities, and have really you know criminalized people just for being people, just for being you know people of uh, uh, you know Mexican heritage. There is, you know, there is a, uh, there was a big case here in our, uh, in the local Tucson school district a number of years ago where we had a Mexican studies program. They, you know, the kids were, had an opportunity to learn their history and learn their culture and learn about their language. Mexican studies program was outlawed uh, by the government here because it was deemed, you know, revolutionary and dangerous. Um, I mean, it's just a way to further oppress that uh, that community here. And in terms of African-Americans, we have a very small percentage of African-Americans here, about 5% of our population, but 15% of the people on death row here in Arizona are African-American men. So we have this long history here that I think we need to look at. We need to 
really empower and enable communities of color, impacted communities here in Arizona to retell the story, to tell the whole truth about our history. And I think that that the, you know, the white community here in Arizona really needs to deal with us. And we need to hear the truth and we, we need to move to reconciliation and we need to create a plan together to make things right, you know, to really ensure that there is equity and justice and dignity and respect and opportunity for all. And I think we only get there by telling the truth. So if elected, you would be the first openly gay governor in United States history. What does that mean to you? You know, anytime there's a first in in uh, 2018, my you know, my first thought is what what the heck took so long? You know, why are we still having firsts for goodness sakes? I think that it, it'll just be one more yet one more way that we break down barriers and that we help people see in a new way. And we move a little bit closer to really to living out the full ideals of our nation and uh, and here, you know, in our state, that all people are created equal and that all of us have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I think, you know, I think my election would, would move us a little bit closer to that ideal. I'm just, I'm just running this race as a, as a person, you know, I'm not, I'm not really running as a, an openly gay person. I'm just being very open and transparent about who I am as I give the voters of Arizona, um, you know, an opportunity to choose their candidate. And I, you know, I'm having a lot of fun. I love going to events and, and seeing my, my wife, Tana, introduce herself to people as your next first lady. (laughs) That's really fun. That's great. Now, how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? My website is friarforarizona.com. Uh, that's also my, uh, you know, my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat name as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and telling us about your candidacy. Jordan, it's been, been really good to be with you today. Thanks for for doing this this podcast and for bringing these ish, these really important issues uh, out, I think into the open and letting folks know, you know, what's going on and that we are headed for change in in Arizona and in this country. And I think that's a really positive thing. Absolutely, and we wish you the best of luck on your campaign. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.